Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. And I'm here, but I'm not really here. This is premiering, but I am I am out of town, and I wasn't able to do the show live on Tuesday. So this is a pre-record, and uh, be nice to each other in chat. I can't monitor you. I shouldn't even say that, maybe. But anyway, um, uh, I'll be back next week at the usual time, uh, live. And I will be telling you, I might as well say who it is right now, who's on with me. And let's see, I have uh, Caroline Corey and a few others, uh, Dave Altman and Dave Mason on. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Terror in the Sky, that uh, movie that's pretty popular out there. So uh, this week, I have uh, Mario Woods, uh, a nice gentleman. He had quite an encounter this is back in the 1970s. Uh, he was a sergeant in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, he was a U.S. Air Force security policeman, retired, um, in Ellsworth Air Force Base, South uh, Dakota. Things started happening there back in 1953, including cattle mutilations and all kinds of odd things going on, lots of UFO and uh, lots of UFO encounters. And the blog this week by Charles Lear is a UFO abduction and Bahia Blanca, uh, let me try that again, Bahia Blanca, Argentina. <laughs> and uh, so a, a great blog as always. And uh, so check that out on our website, podcastufo.com. And uh, anyone can support the show. And I thank you all that do uh, for only $2 or more a month. That again is over at podcastufo.com. Uh, support under support the show. So we are ready to bring in our guest, Mario. Welcome to the show, Mario. Hello, Martin. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you. Good. And, uh, you know, I heard, I heard, I, I believe I saw Unidentified <clears throat> when you were on that. Yes. Uh, what was that? Two, two years ago, I believe. Correct. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's quite a story. And a lot, a lot happened. Um, and I think I've only heard part of the story. And so I'm really interested to, uh, you and I talked on the phone a while back, and you told me some yes. unbelievable things that were happening there. And, you know, uh, when it comes to nukes, uh, there's there was 150, I believe, warheads. Correct. Uh, and In some things squad. were happening. You know, you hear about Maelstrom back in the yep. 60s, but this is kind of an, a case you don't hear much about. Yeah, that's true. I um uh... You know, working not only in the military, but also with the Department of Energy for about 14 years, you know, with the Q clearance, you can't really um, could never disclose anything until after I left Department of Energy in 96, which I when I did that, I contacted MUFON several times and uh, Linda Moulton Howe also of Ancient Aliens. At uh, that time, when I was there in South Dakota during the 70s, I was there from uh, 75 to 79 and uh, she was investigating cattle mutilations there. Right. And mm -hmm. I, you know, and the only reason I knew that's because she had a special, it was on a local TV channel and it really raised some eyebrows because uh, she was in our area investigating that very thing. And uh, at one point uh, I've had a large cat back then and took him to my veterinarian and he also, you know, service like cattle and everything. I mean, Rapid City, South Dakota is really a nice place. And, and, uh, there's still a lot of <clears throat> Western type things that happen there. So these veterinarians, you know, they tend to everything, you know, they, whether it be owls or birds of prey, or other birds of prey, or, 
cattle or horses. And uh, I just happened to ask him about it. And he said he had actually seen, you know, a couple of mutilations and couldn't explain it. And later on, while I was at Ellsworth, I did witness, along with my partner at the time, uh, his name is Mark Wade. We actually stopped at a at a corral area on the corner of one of these. Everything out in the missile fields are, are all clay roads. And mm -hmm. uh, two cattle had been had been mutilated. And it was weird because they were on their back with their legs straight up in the air. And how, how does a cow with a rounded back and hmm. I, I don't know, it's a very strange thing to see that. And yeah, I mean, I walked up close and personal to it and, you know, they were asking if we saw anything, which we hadn't, but we'd been on a, a launch facility that was very close there. It was in Belfouche, actually, South Dakota. And uh, uh, but anyway, he had a sheriff out there and some other investigators and, and it was really some strange stuff to see that, you know, eyes removed or, or you know, on incision around the eyes, just perfectly removed. Tongues around the gum area, some parts of the gum yeah. Not teeth, but just gum area. I've and seen the course, pictures. It's yeah, it is really a puzzle. Another another strange mystery. Um, yeah. So you were in the service. Do you want to talk a little bit about? Um, well, first of all, I want to ask you, had you ever thought about UFOs and encounters and anything like that prior to? Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, yeah. when I was uh, I was in first grade in Port Arthur, Texas, my mother was taking me, my sister and a friend of I, that I played with the school. I was about five, I think, five or six years old, D. Queen Elementary, 1961. And um, we were just literally in line to be dropped off. And there was probably 10 cars in front of us. That was in 61 now. And the school was a school that went from first grade to 12th grade. It's still there today. I got to see it a few years ago, but of course it's been modernized. Mm -hmm. And they had the road directly in front of the school front doors blocked off and they had the entire next block was playground. So there was always, you know, what, 150, 200 kids out there playing my age and older. And uh, so as we were sitting in line, my mom said, look, Anthony, my middle name, as she called me, she goes, there's flying saucers. And sitting right next to the school, about 30 feet in the air, and it was right over a church that no longer exists. The concrete pad is still there. I saw that. Um, there were these three silver white saucers, about 25, 30 feet in diameter, exactly the same, all of them. And they sat there for probably 45 seconds to a minute and a half. It scared me to death. I was mm. hanging on to the, to the uh, dashboard, looking up like that at these things. And I think I kept asking my mom, what do they want? What do they want? You know? And, uh, they all had the same pattern of lights on them, which weren't, which was not a lot, but it was a couple of blips and it was, you know, there was a portion rotating underneath them. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah. I've heard about that. I've heard, yeah. I've heard and, about uh, the rotating. Yeah. And it, it's in the, it's in the, I looked it up in, um, uh, some kind of a newspaper, but it would, of course, today it, it was on microfish then it's not, it wasn't yeah. you know, on data, but or in data. But um, anyway, and just as they were sitting there, they all three at one time simultaneously poof went straight up out of sight. I mean, I watched them go completely out of sight from this size to, to that size and gone. So how many people would you say that you knew that witnessed that <clears throat> a lot of people? Oh, every kid, you could hear a pin drop on a playground. Wow. Yes, all the teachers and students were hanging out the windows on the, would have been the uh, west side of the building. 
I mean, literally we had wooden windows, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they had the windows up looking out, pointing up. I remember seeing that because I just couldn't believe that they were there. But the funny part about it, when they, when they left, everybody just went back to what they were doing. It was no big deal. Huh? I, I don't know how you can say that, but that, that's exactly right. Everybody just went, Oh, well, yeah. You know, and, you know uh, it's, I hear so many things like that. It's <laughs> just, and it makes me wonder if there's some, yeah, I'm really going to go out there when I say this. Is this maybe some type of mind control or yeah. something? Yeah, they you know? were there for a reason. They were there. Yeah. I think I really do. I mean, yeah. you know, that kind of technology. And I, I just want to say that right off the rip that the type of technology that these beings possess is is only limited to us by our own imagination. I mean, they've overcome quite a bit to get where they are today. Yeah. No telling how long their civilization's been alive and thriving, and no telling how long they've been, you know, doing what they're doing. Yeah, and I'm sure they find, you know, lesser civilizations, whether you know, whatever their purpose is, whatever their investigation is, um, and they're going to continue to do that. But their technology levels are—they're not within a hundred years of us. We're not going to be where they are in a hundred years. Yeah. There's no way. Yeah. There's no way. Well, yeah, and who, and if they're all the same, I mean, there could be so many different also. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but, yeah it's, it's so hard to to understand um, how, you know, these things work, how, you know, what they think of us. And usually, historically, what we do in our societies is that uh, the, the stronger tribal uh, segment will take over the weaker one. You know, that's that's unfortunately that's. Uh, a human nature. Luckily, it's not, as so far as we know, it's not their nature uh, because if they, they obviously, uh, whatever they are or whoever they are, wherever they're from, um, like you said, to get here, they have to have some type of high intelligence that we can't even, probably can't even imagine. I just think that something was going on on this planet thousands and thousands of years ago. Yeah. And it's all connected. Yeah. And for some reason, maybe maybe it was the Ice Age, maybe it was Pangea. I don't know. For some reason, it all, that all left. And I think the aftermath is what we have in ruins around us today, of which still of everything we know is only about 10% of what's there. So mm -hmm. archaeology continues, which is a real favorite subject of mine. And I study it quite a bit because in my experiences, especially the experience I had in November 5, I became literally obsessed with the shape of a pyramid. And huh. when I saw that movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and I've said, I said this on Identified also, and, and then just this Discovery plus uh, Alien Endgame, you know, it was as if when I was in that theater, when that part, when that Roy got, you know, Roy Richard Dreyfus is sitting in front of the mailbox, uh, yeah. mailboxes and he's trying to look at a mat, he's got a flashlight in his mouth. Yeah. And when that, those lights pop on, and he's, I, it's, it's as if the vacuum or something, the air was pulled out of that vehicle. And he kind of moved several ways in which he seemed like, like sound or something was entering his mind or maybe thoughts or something. He was like being programmed from above. I, I don't know if I, that's a proper way to describe it, but you know, he, he played that part pretty well. I had to get up and leave the theater. I couldn't, I couldn't watch that. I yeah. Because this, that, you actually that that movie premiered shortly after you yeah, had your incident. It did. So yeah. we'll get into all that 
yeah. uh, as we go. So let's uh, let's talk. You went through high school, obviously, and you decided to join the service. I did. I, well, I lost my father real young. He was in a car accident Sorry in 73, my first day in my senior high school year. Oh. And um, yeah, and I would, he was a merchant seaman, a chief, a chief engineer with Texaco, and he was quite interesting. Uh, he was from Banaca, Honduras, and he was a self-taught engineer and later went to school and did really good things. Wow. And um, he used to tell me about things that they would see under the ocean. I really? Mean, he sailed all of his life. Yeah, he'd say, son, there's things out there in that ocean that are fast as jets. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I just growing up, I just shook that off and didn't think nothing about it. He said something's there. And uh, he also talked about a legend that existed in some part of Banaca, Honduras, um, that there were these, uh, these, these, uh, I guess some type of a being that, that were tall and they were real pale skin, redheaded, long hair, bearded, and they didn't walk. They floated above the ground like three or four feet. And as kids, they, they saw them and they said their eyes were like, they they had like burning eyes. So, Hmm. I, I just thought, I said, yeah, dad, okay. <laughs> you know, huh. I didn't think nothing about it, but he said that several times. And there were ruins on his property that's never been excavated. Really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. I was here. I'm going to pop this, this up here yeah. back in, um, well, that was. Uh, Beautiful. That's down in uh, Central America. I was there yeah. with some friends uh, several, several months ago. Um, yeah. Pyramids are really interesting. And. You know, I mean, you think of how they could, you know, how they had the technology to build them and how they could quarry them and and get them, you know, from so many miles away. These blocks that weighed, you know, tons, 60 tons or something yeah. ridiculous, yeah. you know, some of them. Um, and Andrew there's died. like 24 million in the one of the Gaza. Uh, yep. Something like, I mean, I can't remember how many million there's there are blocks in the, in the Gaza pyramid, but yeah, that that's, that's always fascinating. I like archeology span too. And you know, that's the geodetic geodetic center of the planet of all land masses. Hmm. Did you know that? I mean, no. up. and then also from the weight of the great pyramid, it can, it could be nowhere else, but where it is because they actually built a base for it to sit on. <laughs> and yeah, that, that, those, those stones are just gigantic. And they're under the pyramid. I mean, the whole plateau was put there. So Amazing. these guys in loincloths and copper hammers and tools and the round rocks that they used to chip andesite and red granite. Are you kidding me? No, they it's didn't. Amazing. I read somewhere where this is so hard to believe, and I'm sure they'll be preserved if humankind is still around. Uh, not that we will be, but something like 30 some odd million years there'd be no sign of the pyramids if, if the normal wear and tear and weather, supposedly they'd get worn down within 30 something million years, which is so hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, but think about something built so well that it could last that long. What has man yeah. built that could last, you know, 500 years? <laughs> yeah. Not, not a lot. But, I mean, I'm yeah. just, I'm going back to ancient yeah. times, but I mean, really, I, there's construction measures and methods that they had that is, is completely missing to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Well, we're getting way off the subject of UFOs, yeah, but that's yeah. okay. So Please. you, you joined the air force and yeah, yeah sure let's, did. let's talk about how all that went. 
Okay. I uh, went into the security, went into security police and uh, we were a part of, um, there's two branches in, of, of, of security police in the Air Force. One's law enforcement. And the other is basically security police, which re protects resources and sensitive nuclear materials, weapon storage areas, and that kind of thing. Law enforcement on the base kind of kind of protects like, um, you know, all the admin offices, that kind of thing, gate security, all that. Everybody's armed. Everybody has, you know, uh, protection authorities of all types and use of deadly force, of course. But there's a little bit different uh, aspect of doing the duty. You know, you're actually like the the special forces portion of, you know, of security police. And I guess it's special forces today is what they call them. I'm really not sure, but uh, but I, I like to think so because we were we were really trained well and we had really good equipment and it was only getting better. And what they have today was far better than what we had back then. Mm. As far as response vehicles and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so, so I, so I, I was my first base, Ellsworth Air Force Base, and and I went right into missiles because I was in security and I uh, worked all three areas out there. I worked the 66 down in the Badlands, and then I worked the 67th, which was up north of uh, uh, of Ellsworth Air Force Base itself. You know, because Ellsworth is the main supporting base. Then all these facilities that you work are called launch control facilities where you live, three days on, four days off. Now, let me ask you this. Is that is that all on an adjoined property or are these separate properties? Oh, they're all separated. Yeah, they're yeah. everywhere. I and it, it forms part of NORAD, you know, which you have Minot, North Dakota, Maelstrom, F.E. Warren. And what's the other one? Uh, you had Ellsworth and you had Offutt Air Force Base, Nebraska. I mean, you have all these. They all form that network. And then, of course, Cheyenne Mountain, you know, is NORAD, you know, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, oversees all of it. And um it's really was really quite a uh, quite a complex, you know, mm. and I guess in 81 is when I guess something was reached with the Soviet Union and um, President Reagan. They decommissioned the missile side at Ellsworth. But they, of course, they've got B-2 bombers there. So those are up, those are alert aircraft. You know, and everybody thinks that, you know, if these nukes were to, to ever launch, you know, how long would it take to get there? Well, what's the, the shortest area there is over the North Pole, right? That's right. exactly what the Soviet would do and what we would do. So, you know, talking 15 minutes or less. That's pretty scary when you really yeah. think about it. You yeah. know, the, the whole the whole thing. I mean, it really is. Uh, when you think about like if uh, you, you know, you saw the movie War Games, I'm sure. Absolutely. You know, sure. I mean, how close you could be to the end of the world. It could happen so easily. It's well, I'm, it's, I'm uh, I can tell you it's. It's pretty. It's uh, been real close several times, more than civilian population ever will know. Yeah, and you were you were involved in something that seemed like it could have happened. I don't oh, know yeah. if we want to talk about that now, or we should we talk about the series of events that. Uh, well, I can do either. Um, and, and well, let's I since can, we're talking about that, when, okay. since we're talking about that in particular, uh, right. you told me a story on, on when I was driving. On, and we were talking on the phone <laughs> and I, I want to hear that about driving the trucks uh, can, over. Yeah, the, well, yeah. You know, everybody always talks about how um, signals were lost or how these missiles would go offline in the launch control facilities in the, in, in the missile combat crew down in underground, you know, we're the response team. They direct us to go to these affected missile sites. And um, you know, we have an alert team that are, are a, a security response team. That's, 
primary during days. And then at night you have a secondary team. Everybody works 12 hour shifts. And so on a facility, just right off the rip, you've got six security policemen, uh, one R team forms two people. Then you have a backup alert team, two people, and two, you have two flight security controllers and they direct those R teams. But the real direction comes from downstairs when there is an alarm you know, on a site, whether it be an outer perimeter uh, alarm or an inner perimeter alarm, which is much more serious, which is what happened November 5. Uh, you have a facility manager and you have four officers there. So two are on duty at any given time. They work the same shifts we do. They're underground 12, you know, 12 hours at a time and then up, you know, and then for three days on, four days off. Um, this particular night, uh, if you mean to just go into that. but Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. The um, a lot of times, if if it, if the missiles went off line, of course everybody lost their minds, and we didn't know which way to go. We were waiting for direction or what to do. Mm -hmm. So you know, within that uh, echelon of rank, uh, these officers, I guess I don't know how they discussed it with each other. We talked to NORAD. I mean, who Joint Chiefs of Staff, whoever they discussed it with, you know, with the problem. But for us. The main thing that used to really get me was when these missiles cycled themselves to launch, meaning that they had no control over what it was doing. It just went through the whole process on their on their panel downstairs. Okay, November November ten is going to launch. You know and what they would do? Well, how can we stop it? We can't. We can't override the signal or anything. So so, they, so can you can you tell me was there a UFO involved in this particular case? I don't know. I, sometimes oh. there was, sometimes there weren't. So it, these things, does is this something that can happen? I mean. <laughs> After what I saw, any damn thing can happen out there. <laughs> yeah. Geez, that is just yeah, so crazy. Our, our something that dangerous can yeah. arm itself yeah. somehow. Somehow. And prepare itself for launch. I mean, those are solid fuel rockets. You know, so there's underground, there's dehumidifiers that keeps those rockets dehumidified or the, or the fuel source, which is a powder at that time. Now they're liquid. But um, so we would be dispatched in a hurry, get there as quick as you can, open the gates, drive onto the site. You know, there's a 13 ton blast door that sits on top of these missiles. And if that missile were to launch in reality, in real world, that blast door, it goes back at supersonic speed almost and it hits a great big steel plate about two and a half three inches deep or thick and it's on rails just like on a railroad track and you can see simulations there you can see actual launches i think from um, one of the bases in california how these things launch and how they work um, but anyway it's supposed to trip the door and blow it up and blow it up and out and over the fence which is supposed to blow it about an eighth of a mile believe it or not 13 oh, god Wow. But what they had us do was being this missile was, you know, they've lost control of it and it was cycling itself to launch. They would have us drive our vehicles out there as quickly as possible, two man team in one vehicle, an F-154 pickup truck and sit it on top of the missile site or sit it on top of the blast door and then put it in neutral and get off the site by a mile just in case the daggone thing launched, hoping that when the blast door blew off, being the vehicle was in neutral, it would drop down on the missile and it would 
mess it up in some way or its guidance system and it would just go off and hit the ground and detonate, you know, but conventional, it wouldn't be nuclear. I, I don't guess, but I don't really know that, but I, we, we did that. I don't know how many times. And that was from, that was from, geez, I think that was from 76 all the way to 79. I probably responded. I probably went to eight or 10 of those. And I was, it was, I'm just one, I was one of 800 security policemen. So that is, know, just, yeah. And my incident wasn't alone. You know, I was, you're never alone in any of these situations. You always have a partner or you have another team member that's with you, or you may be, there may be two teams or you may have several, six or eight people with you. That seems like such a national security issue. Yeah. I, it just seems like it's like something impossible to happen, but there are, there are cases even in Russia, mm -hmm. but it did involve a UFO. Yes. Where well, we uh, the launch sequence. Too. Yeah. We had several that did also, but there were several times it went to a site where there was nothing. It had already been there. Oh, it had, it may have already yeah. been there ahead of yeah, time. They would leave. I mean, they, you might see a streak across the sky. I didn't see that. You know, I saw something completely different on November five. Yeah. There was no question what I saw. Yeah. Well, you know, we've got like an hour and a half. We've got plenty sure. of time to talk yeah. about all this. So, uh, but, mm. um, you know, uh, the aftermath of, of just that alone, that's, that's, I mean, you must have been scared out of your wits. Well, it, it, it's an awakening and sobering uh, career field. You, yeah. you know, you, you, you're not even thinking anything like that. You're thinking, you know, anti-terrorism and, you know, what could happen if somebody were to access one of these sites, which would be pretty much, I mean, I guess it could be possible, but to get to an actual warhead on one of those sites, believe me, there would, it would be a huge firefight because we, we would know you're there and we would bring everything to stop uh, you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was in the time of Russell Means and the Indian movement that was going on out there. And, it was, we had, there was a whole bunch of threats always. So we were always in a heightened in a state of awareness, you know, and our patrols, you know, we patrolled every day. You just don't stay at a missile site, wait for a dispatch. You know, you patrol, do launch facility checks and all that stuff. So you check everything. You escort people out there. You escort the alert teams that come out to do work or, um, you know, or to reach, you know, whatever they had to do to the missile itself or the platform or anything like that. Or so, one, even. <laughs> 150 warheads. How many miles apart were was the total? Would you say? I mean, how how much mileage would that cover? Like square miles or whatever. You mean the entire network there? Yeah, yeah. Well, if if you looked at a map, I mean, it started it started at Ellsworth from the Badlands, mm -hmm. it went all the way over into Wyoming at Effie Warren. So wow. It went completely and all the way north into Minot, North Dakota, then all the way northwest to Maelstrom Air Force Base. So you can kind of see this vast, you know, missile network that exists there. And all those except elsewhere still exist today. Now, it is a network. Is it? Is yeah. it? Yeah. And so with a centralized control center well, type of thing? Well, I mean, uh, you know, of course, the president has the ultimate uh, launch capability, yeah. but you know, if directives are, are done or, or carried out, each launch control facility, the, the, the missile crew uh, that are there, the officers that are there, you know, they have the keys and lock boxes below ground in, in their facility. There's two weapons there and not one person can turn two keys. Not one person can launch a nuclear weapon. There's no yeah. way 
physically possible to do that. That's good. That's very good. Yeah. I remember there was a accident where someone dropped a tool. A wrench. A wrench. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and that a fuel line, and that was a liquid fuel rocket. That was wow. a that was a uh, that was a Titan, not a minute not a Minuteman. Oh, okay. And it blew a crater. I mean, gargantuan. Yeah. It, it, uh, yeah, it was terrible. It was, they couldn't stop it. You know, and now, of course, you know, everything's tethered to people that work on them. They didn't do that then. Oh, wow. And all tools are tethered to an individual. Oh, man. yeah, yeah. That make that totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's the initiation of it when yeah. that happened. Oh, that, my God. Yeah. What a terrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's still I think it's still costing people their lives. But, uh, but and it was bad. Hmm. Wow. So uh, you heard our. Uh, since this all happened to you, you heard about the particular area you were in. There were people seeing UFOs starting all the way back in 1953. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And what did you, how did you hear about that? Who talked about that? Uh, well, I, I met a couple of officers there. I, I played a lot of tennis back then and I was pretty good at it and uh, really tried to seek a professional career at at, at one time. But, um, you know, these B-52 bomber officers and other missile officers that were there, they would talk about things and they'd been there several years. And when I first got there, there were actually two F-86 fighter aircraft and two hangars. But they had they had a couple of sightings where these air, these craft came right down on the runway at Ellsworth. Now, mind you, they had an uploaded B-52 bomber wing. So you mm. got these buffs sitting everywhere on the, on the alert pad and they're uploaded with with nukes they're ready to go and um it was as if they were being the flight controllers it were actually being taunted by these by these craft and it was more than one and they would come down within 25 or 30 feet of the runway over it and then wait for these fighter jets to be scrambled and just lead them away north toward minot north dakota and then just run away from them and they that happened six or eight times uh, <laughs> Yeah, from from those years that year you just described all the way into, I guess the late '60s and early '70s. Now I was working in the missile field, so I didn't see any of that. But they, but that did happen a few times while I was there. I wonder now, if any of these can be found in Project Blue Book files. You know, because that that, that yeah, 1969 was the last year they were yeah, around. 69. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I think Project Blue Book was just a uh, information control. Uh, yeah. Uh, window dressing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, it, and, and since it was military, it probably was just kept hush hush. Yes. And Even they could do away with, they did. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to talk, let's talk about, you talk about this November five. Excellent. Okay. And what, what year was that? Uh, 1977. Mm -hmm. um, on this particular night, I don't know the exact date, but it was before Thanksgiving. Uh, in 1977, it was cold. It had already been a blizzard in late October. Uh, <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah, it gets really cold. Yeah, I've seen it like 50 the below. Dakotas are really something. Yeah, from what I hear. Yeah, <laughs> and believe me, you're prepared for it. You've got parkas, bunny boots, pant parkas. You know, I mean, I mean, you have really great cold weather gear, and uh, that's what kept keeps us alive out there. Believe it or not. And, yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, this one particular night. Um, I was working with a new guy named Michael Johnson and a real nice guy. And, uh, he was working vacation relief. Uh, 
I stepped outside about 9.15, 9.20. I smoked back then, and I just wanted some fresh air, you know, and our missile sites, we only, there was only three TV channels back then. Yeah. And uh, we, had a, we had a nice day room. You know, you have a kitchen, you have a chief cook and all that stuff. So, you know, you got your flight security controller's office, and you have your bedrooms in the back where your facility manager sleeps, and two off-duty officers, they sleep in those back rooms. And then you have, of course, your off-duty security policeman. And uh, so we were on duty from the 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. shift. And as I said, about 930, I just stepped outside to smoke a cigarette and just right out the front door and, and of, the, of the vestibule. And every every building up there has a vestibule to protect from cold into the warm area, you know, so mm -hmm. you expose it with a door on the inside. But anyway, our vehicle was kept directly outside the flight security controller's office and it was plugged in. We had a. a a warmer that kept the transmission fluid uh, and the fluids uh, warm right. in the event of those in the bad weather and cold yeah. weather, like and I, fifty yeah. below. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I mean, I've seen the tires frozen to the cement or frozen to the parking lot before. So, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I just stepped outside to smoke a cigarette. It's about nine twenty, nine thirty at night, and I just happened to look, and I would be looking east at a, and I see this object or I see something, I didn't know it was an object at the time, at about a 30 degree elevation, maybe, I don't know, five, six miles away. Mm -hmm. And I thought it at first it was a helicopter. Or I said, well, it could be B-52 bombers, but, you know, because they'll do these really low running sorties that when they do their practice bomb runs, that's what they do. They come in real low altitude. And they, they're really fast, you know, and I, I didn't know a B-52 bomber could do that. I thought it was all high altitude stuff, and that's not true. So um, anyway, I see this thing, and uh, it looked odd. It was a different color or something. It was flickering different. I went, what the heck is that? So I looked away, and I looked back at it, and it's still there, and it was stationary. I said, well, that's not, that's not a planet. It's not, you know, it's not a star. I know, not a star. You know, you see Jupiter or Venus or whatever. Mm -hmm. I said, well, maybe it's a helicopter. I said, I'm so I don't know what came over me. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to flip the security lights at this thing. So not even thinking they could see you, you know, or anything like that. But out there, this missile site or this launch control facility would stand out like, you know, a welder's light because it's all prairie. I mean, these Buffalo run the prairies there, you know, mm. you can see them. Mm. And, um, so I walked inside and Bill Holloman, he was a staff sergeant. He was our flight security controller, a good friend of mine. He was on the phone with his wife back in Rapid City. And I said, Bill, I said, I see something out here, man, in the air, in the sky. I said, it's right over here, you know, to the east of us. He just looked at me and kind of waved at me like that. He was talking to his wife. And I said, I'm going to flip the lights at it. I said, I think it's a helicopter or something. I'll see if it flips back, you know. The only reason I did that is because when I sailed with my father back in the summers when I was growing up, ships sometimes signal lights. And you've seen that on movies in the Navy. They flick lights at each other and yeah. communicate at sea, right? Right. So I did just that. I just, no sequence, no SOS or anything. I don't even know if I knew what an SOS was in a flight <laughs> sequence then. I think I was supposed to, but I didn't. And I just flipped the facility lights. There's about 12, 14 of these big, large cans you know, on all the perimeter fencing and on the perimeter of the building. Hmm. So it looked like it was a big signal, you know? Yeah. I, and one switch controlled them all. So I just went blip, 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 blip. 
back on, walked outside and I looked, thinking, you know, if it's a helicopter, they'll, maybe they're going to come this way or something. So I just, I was looking at it and all of a sudden it just went off. And about five seconds passed and it popped back on and I went, what? Huh. <laughs> so I did it again. I went back in, you know, I'm only, I'm only 10 feet up outside the door, you know, I run back in. I say, Hey man, if I got flipping this light at something. So I did it again and I go back up and lo and behold, it goes out again and pops back on. Hmm. I did this three times and I went and I got Michael Johnson. All right. I told him, I said, and you got to see this. I asked Bill Holloman to come out there and uh, he was, he didn't even, he didn't want to even acknowledge me really. He was just on the phone with his wife worried about kids, but, Anyway, so Michael Johnson comes out and I said, man, you got to check this out. I said, I flipped the lights of this thing. I said, it's not moving yet. Yeah, it's not moving. Um, watch this. I said, I'm going to go flip the lights out. So I flipped the lights at it again. That would have been the fourth time, third or fourth time. And uh, it went out. Hmm. Didn't come back on. No. Didn't I, come back on that time. Did not come back on. And I went, well, man, this is really strange. I said, what could, maybe it turned the other direction so I can't see the light, you know, or whatever it was. I don't know. Or just, I don't know, landed. I don't know. So Michael Johnson walked back in and I hung around outside and I was still looking, just kind of questioning what I'd seen. And all of a sudden to the North, boom, it just pops on. And it seemed like from where it was to where it ended up, it moved kind of like to its left, kind of like more westerly, kind of like to out toward the north of where I'd originally seen it to the east, put it that way. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, maybe it went at, a, went at an angle kind of, because uh, it wasn't as far away, it was brighter when it popped back on. So it, it kind of startled me when I saw that. And I went, wow, Maybe that is a plane, but I couldn't, you know, it wasn't moving like a plane. It was just in stationary in the sky. So I went back in one more time and I flipped the lights at it again. When I came back out, it was out, it was gone. Mm. And that was about probably quarter to 10 then, you know, so 15, 20 minutes, I messed with this thing. Well, you know, this, I did the light thing. So I didn't worry about it. I went back into the day room, picked up a book or looked at one of the three TV channels that we had. And we're just north of a little town called Newell, South Dakota. Hmm. The population there was 230. And they were real proud of that because there's a sign coming on how, you know, or coming north on Highway 79 as you enter Newell. And then on, as you exit Newell. So on both entry and, that, entry and exit, population 230. <laughs> Today at 670, I was just there. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> now, is this, that's not uh, Newell there. Uh, no. That right there, that's a November 5 missile site. That's oh, okay. The, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, Google Earth uh, longitude latitude. Yeah. Uh, anyway. So you were just saying that population grew to 670, yeah, I think you said since, something. Since this, for, since 40 something, 43 years yeah. ago. Yeah. So, um, Anyway, I, like I said, I went back inside and just sat down and watched some TV, read a book, and just messed around, went and talked to Bill Holloman a little bit and and didn't do too much. And all of a sudden, about 12.20, 12.30, the MCC phone from the capsule crew, from the officers downstairs, it just went off. And it was, you know, that means you're going to go somewhere. And when it goes off, it's one of those phones that rings like, it doesn't ring, it goes, 
<clears throat> like that. Oh, so you yeah. got to pick it up or, or die listening to it. One of the two. It's real loud. <laughs> you can't miss it. Yeah. So it was one of the, it was a captain downstairs. I don't remember his name. Um, uh, anyway, so we had a sit four, which is a, a high level alarm. And that means two different things. That means an outer penetration and an inner penetration on this missile site itself. And, um, you know, there's certain levels, uh, access levels on these sites that I can't discuss, don't want to discuss. But um, anyway, it was one of those access levels alarmed. And uh, the outer outer perimeter alarm was is a normal thing. Birds and rabbits or owls or whatever, you know, set those off all the time. And uh, but that inner perimeter alarm is or that inner alarm is really a serious deal. So uh, we got our security briefing and all that stuff from the capsule crew. And our travel time was about 15 minutes. You know, all that stuff was prearranged and set up and well organized. So cranked the vehicle up, got it going, got our ditty bags, our weapons, our USK code tables, all of our stuff to go to November 5. And uh, Michael Johnson was a team leader. He outranked me by about two months. So that's, that's huh. great. Excuse that's, me? Yeah. Oh, it's just laughing how the, the rank works. Yeah. Yeah. Two months. It can be yeah. one day. It doesn't matter. You really? Know? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the nature of things. But really, it's a good thing. But uh, anyhow, so he was driving. I was a passenger. And at, no, at November 1, where we were, November 1 is the launch control facility. And all the missiles of the surrounding area are all November missiles in our in our little squadron. You have Kilo not far away, Oscar, Mike, Lima, all the way down the, the phonetic alphabet, you know. And um, so, uh, and that's our emblem for uh, 44 squadron. Yeah. squadron. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, we get everything issued and vehicles rolling and uh, we go out the gate and down the end of the road, turn left, turn left on a clay road. And these clay roads go from one state to the other, just as straight as an arrow on clay. Wow. Uh, beautiful. Mm. But uh, at, the, at the corner, turn left. Next corner, turn another left. And I was approaching. We were approaching Highway 79. So as we, and that was about, I guess it's about three miles up to Highway 79. <clears throat> so as we're approaching, you're kind of like down in a little, uh, little valley kind of thing. That I. I you know, it's, it's a prairie, so you have these ups and downs, and uh, all the roadbeds there, like highways, are built up a little bit on a on a bed. So, I guess so, snow and so forth will run off of them as they as it melts or as, mm -hmm. as it's uh, plowed. And uh, so, as I approached, we got up to Highway 79. The road it went up to 79. I just happened to look over to about the four o'clock position in, you know, where November five would be as a crow flies about five miles away. And I honestly see this glow from the ground. It looked like, like a sun sitting there. I mean, I was like, Michael, you see that? I said, you see that? I said, that's the color that I said, that's that, that's that thing that was in the air. He's like, it freaked him out. He, he, uh, Oh, now man. would this would this be this image here? That would be it, but yeah. not yet, but not okay. there yet. All right, yeah. Uh-huh. So anyway, we turn right. As we turn right, of course, that four o'clock position came to my about my two o'clock position because we're up on a we're up on a rise now on top of the plateau plateau heading down toward Newell, which was about, I guess, about eight miles, seven, maybe eight miles to the stop sign. In Newell, there is one stop sign and there is one traffic light, and that's it. 
literally that's it. And it still is today. Um, so as we got to the stop sign, of course, as we went down the hill, you know, I kind of lost sight of the glow and I kept saying, man, that's that same object or that's that same glow. He, he really couldn't even speak. And we'd never worked together before. This was our first time together ever. So, you know, what I've been working with him now, it's six hours, you know, and that's just the way vacation relief went. You came out and worked a cycle or a tour of duty as vacation relief. And then you went back to your normal flight. That's what it was called. So when we got to the stop sign, I can't, I have no, can't see it. And I'm, I'm wondering, what is this? What is that? You know, I mean, that's, I just kept saying it to myself. I hope it's whatever it is, is gone. I hope. So the road, as we turn right on the Ormond road, you can look it up on, on Google maps, Ormond road, O R M A N. It go, it goes out. It goes to the right and it's about a mile and a half. And then it dog legs to the left and it drops off back onto clay again. And when we rounded that corner, that November 5 picture you just popped up there a minute ago, that object was sitting on top of that missile site about five foot in the air. So was it was it sitting like it shows here in the image? It and by was, the way, I can I'm gonna have these not, images in show notes. It did um, not it did not make contact with the ground. It was sitting about five to ten feet off the ground. Sitting. And so was it a like a like a sphere? It was just as you see it right there. It looked like a mini sun. And uh, that movie that Travis Walton is, is in that they made that fire in the sky. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the color that that thing emanated. It was as if it had a gaseous exterior on it. There's no hard edges. There's no leading edges or any metal or any insignias or anything that I could see while I could look at it because it was so bright that it was extremely difficult to, to really try to focus on and to, to get lost in that thought of looking at it. Was and it was it lighting up the whole area like day? Absolutely. Oh, yes, sir. Mm -hmm. It lit up everything. And you see where the, in that picture where we pulled positioned our vehicle, which was at a 45 degree angle, which was a normal response angle. And that little line in front of it, that's a cattle crossing gate, which is oh, still yeah. here today. Mm -hmm. And um, that distance from that cattle crossing gate to the main gate <clears throat> of the of the launch facility is only about 25 yards. It's very close. But that object was so large, if I can just say this, that when I when I pull myself out onto the window seal of that F-150, well, let me I'm, let me back up a little bit. We pulled up there. And um, it was so bright and overwhelming that I think, <clears throat> I don't know, I, I don't know, I should say this, but you could close your eyes and you could see this thing behind your eyelids. It was mm -hmm. that bright. It was like a welder's light. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it was all in one motion as if, and our windows are up, you know, we're in full-blown parkas. I've got my M16 right here between my legs and, you know, I'm just sitting just like this. I had my I had one mitten on, and um, I had my mag light. And all of a sudden, it got so bright in that truck that you couldn't even really look at the dashboard. This this has this is an F-150 Ford, dark blue exterior, and blue interior. You know, the old vinyl interior that they had on them then. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, all the oxygen 
and everything in that vehicle was like it was just pulled up and out of it. And mm -hmm. I remember I looked at Michael Johnson and he was like in a glow to my, he's to my left as he was driving the vehicle and he was stuck to the wheel just like this. He never, he never looked to me or looked to my, to his right. He never looked at me, he never said anything to my knowledge. Now, just pardon me for one second. Yep. Did you get on the horn and, you know, on the radio and radio this thing in? I don't, I don't think I did. I don't think wow. I could. Mm. I, all I wanted was relief. All mm. I could think of was please release me from whatever this is that I'm involved in. I mean, the, the feeling of uh, pressure and mm -hmm. uh, I'm shaking now, the feeling of pressure and no air in my lungs. And I was extremely athletic. And um, all I knew to do was ask for relief. And why this came upon me, I do not know. I rolled that window down of that F-154 truck. And we had these big Western mirrors, this big aluminum looking oh, mirror yeah. on the side of it. Mm -hmm. And I had my mag light in my right hand. And I lifted myself up and I reached up, grabbed a blue bubble on top of the vehicle, our response blue lights. Mm -hmm. And I pulled myself out on that windowsill. I was so, I couldn't get out of the vehicle. Normally nothing would frighten me like that. And I pulled myself out on that windowsill and I flashed my flashlight at this thing, just like I did back at the site. That's all I knew to do. I did that just click, 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 click. And I slid back down on the seat and all I was asking for relief is what's in my mind. Please stop. Please stop is what I was. That's what I was in my mind, what I was saying to myself, because I didn't know how much longer I could stay my, with my wits about me or, or stay awake. I felt as if I was just going into a, a tunnel or something. Now I'm surprised that, you know, I know you have to go up. You said you had to pull up at a 45 degree angle and all that, but I'm surprised that you're the driver. Mike didn't like try to retreat. He was as if he was frozen. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. The last thing he said to me was whatever at, back at Highway 79 when I said, I think that's that object over there. He said, whatever. Huh. That was the last thing he said to me. He didn't speak another time, and there's still hours that we can discuss here. But So I asked this thing to stop or for relief, and I've sat back down in the seat, and I rolled my window up. <laughs> I'll never forget it. I rolled my window up. And it was as if tunnel vision just closed in on me and I just did my head like this and I, I sensed something and I turned to my right as if like slow motion and I'm, I'm seeing something like as in a tunnel and I saw these four beings that were coming from the passenger side of this vehicle. Now I'm going to put up the, what you drew later. Okay. And, let me ask you how, and there's three here, but you said there were four. Yeah. How, how long after this happened, did you draw these? Was this a recent drawing? That was uh, about a year ago. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of what you recall. Yes. They were sort of bluish. Yes. Uh-huh. And then the, uh, the tall one, he had something, he had a uniform on that had these really strange creases in it. Some type of a black uniform. So th this is what you saw with an additional being Another kind of walking yeah. toward the truck. Yeah, I did some cruder drawings of, of, 
of them that I that I did. I did the little guys. I did separate, and then uh, the taller one. I I had another picture of him, and I put the three together like that. But really, in my hypnosis, I saw four, or I said I saw four, to the best of my ability. Yes, that's what I originally drew. And this, now these here, these here though, the did you which color were they? These are sort of an orange color. I just drew it in tan. They were more of a bluish color. I see. That's I all see. I had to draw with at the time. I did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Keep keep going. This is interesting. So well, they started walking toward the truck. They walked toward the truck, and all I could hear in my mind was, "Do not fear. Do not fear." Hmm. And that's the last thing that I remembered for a little bit. And the next thing that came upon me, I don't know how much time passed when I kept hearing, do not fear, do not fear. And the do not fear, I just want to make this clear, was not like you and I talking. This, this information was like inside of me. Like it was like using the liquid of my body to talk to me or something. I don't know how that even makes sense, but it was as if the thought or, you know, it was like talking underwater. Like mm. when somebody goes under the pool and tries yep. to talk to you, it was like that. But mm. it was clear as a bell, and it was it was soft. It wasn't harsh. It just said, do not fear. Do not fear. Many times. Mm. I don't know how long it was, but the, the, uh, <clears throat> the next memory I have <clears throat> is I'm, I'm, uh, I'm on my back, and I'm coming away from the vehicle is that does that make sense or is this i'm well just... that was that was a little bit later that okay was... all right sorry yeah that's okay um but i'm on my back and i'm looking and i see the door of the security police vehicle says u.s air force on the side of it in gold letters about an inch tall so the door was closed and i'm on my back but i'm going like i'm i'm about four feet off the ground and i'm on my back and i'm looking and then something placed its, uh, I think when he's being put his hand on my right shoulder and kept telling me, do not fear. Hmm. I don't know what happened to Michael Johnson. I have no idea. I don't know if, if anything happened to him over there with any beings or whatever. I, I honestly, I didn't, you know, when all this happened, I really didn't know to whether to, um, I couldn't, to shoot at it to literally mess myself, run, hide. I mean, you feel like the, you feel like uh, the, I'm not a hunter. I don't hunt animals, but I've um, been trained to hunt men, man. But uh, I felt like the rabbit behind the only bush in the desert, you know, really in the mm. desert. And there was something after me and I couldn't do nothing about it. Mm. So uh, from that point, I was on my back. And something put touched me here and told me, do not fear. Was that then, verbal or was that again a thought? It's inside. It's all inside. Yeah, so, always, there was never yeah. any, never any, any thing as if you and I are talking or any noises being made, it was all inside my body. Mm -hmm. Of course, I was speaking, you know, I spoke at, at times and later when we get into this, but, uh, you know, like I asked where Michael Johnson was, where's Michael, mm -hmm. where's Michael? And I never got an answer for that. Hmm. But um, I remember um, this strange feeling that I had 
I was in some type of a gel of some of some kind. And it was and it was real warm. And I don't know if I was clothed or not clothed. But I remember I just felt like I was in like not tar, but some kind of a some kind of a gel, a jello. I don't know. Mm-hmm. From from head to foot. And I don't know if I was submerged in it, but I I kept thinking to myself, because you know, these thoughts that you have and in they're so hard to relay because you don't have words for it. And um, I just felt as if as if I was within myself. And um, I remember I remember pain in my right wrist, and much more things came out. I, I've, I've been hypnotized a couple of times by a MUFON uh, uh, hypnotist. Mm-hmm. He's certified and everything, and. Um, some things came out there that I didn't know. And uh, the next thing I remember after that, after that gel feeling or whatever it was and pain in my wrist is all of a sudden I open my eyes and it's completely dark. And uh, I thought I looked and I looked at Michael, looked at Michael Johnson and he's still frozen to that steering wheel. Hmm. Wow. Just literally, he is frozen to that steering wheel. He wouldn't say a word. And I kept saying, Michael, where are, where, where, what are we doing? Where are we? Now, this was a sit four, mind you. This was a real serious <laughs> alarm, you know, on a missile site, on a Minuteman II nuclear missile site. This hmm. was a real serious alarm. So it can't go unanswered. You have to know what caused it. You have to provide a reason. You have to do a function as a security policeman on that facility. It can't go undone. Hmm. So I looked to my right as because he wouldn't answer me. And I was just kind of, I didn't know what to do at that point. And I looked to my right and there's this white wall sitting next to me. And I thought, where the hell am I? And I, I looked up and it went as far as I could see. So I opened the door. And when I opened the door, I had on bunny boots. And bunny boots are for real cold, extreme weather. Yeah, we were in South Dakota. You inflate them, you know. They right, they're white, and they're you know, yeah, they inflate. Yep. These were dark blue. Oh, oh. And I, but I know out. the type. Yeah. I yeah. stepped out, and I was in mud. Now, mind you, the t- temperature was between nine and twelve degrees, and it'd been that way for quite, you know, quite some time. And I looked that up. I went back and sequenced weather events to see, you know, how cold it actually was, because I knew it was it was jet cold, you know. And I said, so I stepped out of the vehicle. I still couldn't figure out where I was at this white wall. And as I was thinking about that, that radio cracked a life. And it said, wing security control, November one, what's your location? Hmm. I looked at Michael Johnson. I said, you're going to get that? Because we weren't anywhere near November five. Oh, man. <clears throat> and um, he didn't answer so I kept trying to talk to him and um, I picked the radio up and I said, uh, November one WSC. I said, it's Sergeant Woods. I said, uh, he goes, what's your location? What's your 20? I said, I don't, I don't know, sir. I said, I don't know where we are. I said, mm-hmm. uh, my team leader, Michael Johnson's not talking. I said, I don't know what's wrong with him. And um, he said, I want you to keep talking. I want you to do one minute checks with me. So if we're trying to, 
you, you, we're trying to triangulate you to find your location, you know, and I, that was the weirdest statement I think I've ever heard in my life. Hmm. And I wore an old time, I wore a Timex watch back then. It wasn't old. It was just a Timex watch back then. And I looked down at my watch and it was working, but it was after 6 a.m. And we arrived at missile site at about quarter till one, about quarter to one, one o'clock. Jeez. So we had, we had five hours of missing time. Couldn't account for anything. Only thing I remember is, you know, flash that flashlight at that, at that craft. Don't remember it leaving, but the size of this thing, I got, you got to know this. I used a comparison on, on uh, unidentified where people could understand it because, you know, back then nobody really had a reference size an aircraft carrier. Well, not many people know about an aircraft carrier, but that, that, that craft was the size of a super Walmart center. It was gargantuan. And even when I just was on Discovery Plus on Alien Endgame, um, they put in their own numbers to the size of it, which I didn't appreciate. And uh, none of these programs have ever told the entire incident as it happened. So I appreciate what you're doing and allowing me to, to speak freely about this. Yeah. But going back to this white wall, I still had no idea where we were. And man, I just got to calm down here for a minute. But um, so yeah, let me. I'll you take your time. You're yeah. you. Did you actually have to step out of the truck to yeah, see yeah. the? Yeah. So I, the white I, wall, and you looked up, and it yeah, looked it's like as far, it was as far north and south as I could see, and that's exactly what it was north and south. And I didn't know that till just last um, September the second when when I, well I went back there. Mm -hmm. I was, I'd never been back there since it happened. I didn't know where I was at that time. And, um, and I'd never been there before. So literally when I went back, uh, August 31st with uh, discovery plus was, um, uh, to the to September 2nd as the first time I'd ever been there. And the crazy part about that is while we were filming that this Ormond road that I described was, um, it, you know, you you're talking the middle of nowhere in Newell, South Dakota. The neck going west is Belfouche, South Dakota, and Wyoming. So you're you know 30 miles away, literally, to the Wyoming line or less. And um, there were a bunch of people watching this film. Well, these two guys didn't know each other. They knew each other, but you know, of course, they didn't communicate all the time. One was in a four wheeler, and one was in a side by side Honda, and they were, you know, landowners. And um, so as we, we were kind of wrapping up what we were doing, because it was real emotional for me um, being there and seeing that. And uh, again, and feeling that, I mean, literally, I felt as if the thing was right there in the sky, you know, hmm. and um, these two guys identified themselves, you know, age old ranchers there. One, his father was a state trooper at the time that this incident happened in 77. And the other, he was a deputy sheriff in Sturgis. Sturgis is just like 29 miles south of Newell. I only knew it was 25, 29 miles, maybe 20 miles, I guess. I don't know. And he and two other teams, <clears throat> sheriff's deputies, were, were sent. You know, this guy's my age. I'm 66. And uh, 
he might be older than I am. <laughs> I was 27 at the time, 26 at the time this, this happened to me. And uh, they were sent to by uh, base security, wing security control requested their presence to come look for their armed response team, us. And I never knew that beforehand. I didn't know wow. that three additional backup alert teams, our guys were looking for us. So that's five, four or five there. And then the other fella, his father was a state trooper and his, his, he remembered it very well because his father was called, you know, at three o'clock in the morning to come out. Uh, I guess they did, you know, they were called as needed and not just on the road all night back then in 77. And uh, he, he, he remembers his dad saying to wing security control, whoever the officer was that called him, he remembered his dad saying, well, why am I, why are you asking me to go look for him? For them, because they're 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 equipped way better than I am, yeah. you know, which made sense. Which we were, we were heavily armed, hmm. and um, so his father participated in that also. Also, so that doesn't include my flight chief and assistant flight chief. So really, there were about seven patrols, two man teams looking for us: local law enforcement and security police personnel in the Air Force. And um, I think it was a Sergeant Garza that got to us. You know, they, they triangulated up, just kept doing the radio checks and trying to talk to Michael Johnson. Now, still can I just to... interrupt and ask you a question? Yep. So when you're seeing this white wall, are you still seeing that object as well? No, no, no. It's gone. We're, we're, oh, it's we're, gone. Yeah. I woke up. To, remember, I was totally Oh, black. yeah, yeah. It was black. That's right. Yeah. I'm sorry. Not yep. at the middle side anymore. And how right, that right. happened. You uh, know, pardon me for it, that. Yeah. Okay. We never, we never drove. We didn't arrive there. And it's, it's really strange, but that that little strip of road that we were sitting on, it wasn't even a road, it was a trail. That was the Newell Lake Reservoir Dam that we were behind. Oh. Yes, sir. And where those wheels of that truck were sitting, we were in mud. And looking north and south, the north end of that dam, there's a spillover. And that fed, I guess at times when it really a lot of rain, you know, and the whole thing went, you know, started spilling over. There was a lake down below us, which had been on Michael Johnson's side. And it was about 50, 60 feet down where we were sitting. Well, these are just two wheel drive vehicles that we had, um, our, our F-150s. But if he'd have stepped out of that driver's side door and walked four foot, he'd have gone straight down, you know, a, a really steep embankment into a lake that was down there. Okay. And that's the over that's a spillage flow over or overflow for the dam. I'd never been back there before. I, I, I'd never seen that dam before. I didn't even know it was there. And, uh, and it's well, it's well back off the highway of se highway 79. And it's about, I guess about nine and a half miles from November five and about, uh, seven miles, six miles, seven miles from November one. So, that triangulation, looking at the triangulation of those points on a map where November 1 is, where November 5 is, and then where, where Newell Lake Reservoir is, it forms this Pythagorean triangle. And uh, it encompasses 20.9 miles, but we never drove to this dam. And as I was saying, the only way that you could, we could have got in there and got out to start with would have been to back down in there at whatever time in the morning that could have been. Uh, 
because there's nowhere to turn around where the wheels sat. All you could do was go in there one way and one way out. You couldn't turn a vehicle around. And um, there's a tree that exists just up past the dam on the south side, and it's on a bend. And that I remembered that tree when we just went back out there. It's hmm. still there, a big, great big tree. Doesn't have many branches on it. Remind me of an old hangman tree that you'd see out west or something. Hmm. But it's still there. And um, I remember seeing when the sun came up, and I went, what time is it? And it was after 6, a, 6 a.m. So the Sergeant Garza got to us, and, he, and I said, I jumped out of the vehicle, and I said, hey, Sergeant Garza, I said, uh, he goes, Mario, he said, he said, I said, I'm having trouble with Michael Johnson. He's not, he won't talk or anything. He's just frozen to the steering wheel. And wow. uh, so that was a long time he was frozen. Yeah. I mean, he was just like, he was just like this. And his hands were just clenched on that blue plastic steering wheel. Wow. Just clenched, you know? Hmm. And, um, anyway, he, um, he said, Mario, he says, I can't talk. I said, what the hell? I said, what's going on? He says, I can't talk to you about it. He goes, we're here to take you back November 1. And I said, well, Michael Johnson's not driving. I said, I'm in, I need some help because I got to get him to the passenger side of this vehicle. And of course, you know, I said, I said, he's like, he's like frozen. I don't know what else to say. Not catatonic, cold, sort of catatonic. Yeah. He just, hmm. he couldn't do nothing. He was blinking his eyes and he was breathing. That's all I cared about it. As long as he's that, you yeah. know, we, take care of him but um so i unbelted him we just had you know we didn't we just had seat belts we went around our waist we didn't have shoulder belts at that time and i slid him over and put him in that seat belt and uh i kept talking to him so you know and they were like three teams there now so they because they triangulated our position and, and we all backed out of there and we went november one well when i got there the flight chief and assistant flight chief were there and um and of course these people they the other our teams, they respond, you know, they escorted us there and um, they went back to where they were going to. And we had our backup alert team, which became active now because it was after 6 a.m. You know, and they kept saying, Mario, what happened? I, and I couldn't answer the questions, you know. So Michael Johnson, we got him out of the vehicle. They did. I didn't. I went in. They seated me in the day room and they took Michael Johnson in the back room and in our um when in our bedroom where, where, you know, we had bunk beds at the time, they took him back there to talk to him and lay him down, I guess. And that was the flight assistant flight chief and the flight chief started asking me questions and I couldn't really give him answers other than what I saw and what happened to the best of my knowledge. And he says, well, we got to go to the, we have to go to Ellsworth. We, you know, we got to debrief you. We got to see what's going on with this, you know? And I said, yes, sir. I, you know, I was just a young troop. So, I gotta be careful. I don't want to put myself in AFib again, but um, I swear the first time I got hypnotized, that's when I first went to AFib, but um, mm -hmm. not in it now. But uh, <clears throat> anyhow, um, I, I just I wanted to be alone for a minute, and uh, you know, I, I, I said I got to go to the restroom, so I went to the restroom, and and uh, you know, it's a normal two stall kind of thing, you know, and showers and everything in there for us. Mm -hmm. And um, so I just went and I sat in a stall and I, you know, I just sat there and was in my uniform. I just kind of sat there just getting my thoughts together. And the strangest feeling came over me. I felt as if I was leaving my body. Mm -hmm. I honestly just felt as if I was going, I was, I was going out through my feet. How that could be, I don't know. But I was like, 
this is the weirdest. I thought, I thought, am I dying? That's, that's one thing I said to myself. And I don't know how long I was in that state or how long I was really in there, but what kind of, what took me out of it was I see these shiny Cochrane um, law enforcement boots walking by the stall door. And to the left of those shiny boots was four fur legs. And that was a German shepherd drug dog. <laughs> so they, they were out there to inspect and make sure there was no drugs or anything like that involved, which that's, that's standard, you know, as mm. a, but you know, and he asked me, he says, uh, he, he said, Mario, are you okay? And he knew me. And I said, man, I don't know what I am right now. I said, I, I feel really strange. And, um, uh, he said, well, they want to talk to you, man. He says, everybody wants to talk to you. I, I said, well, is Michael Johnson saying things? He, said, he won't say anything. Wow. And I, I remember, I can't remember his name, but I can see his face. Might have been uh, Steve guy. But um, So I was in there about 20 minutes, and I washed my face and my hands and just splashed water. I made a mess of everything. I didn't care at that particular point. And then I uh, went back out in the day room, and uh, Sergeant Gray, or Master Sergeant Gray said, um, we're going to have to go back to Ellsworth. You're going to arrive with me. He said, Michael's going to, going to arrive with uh, the assistant flight chief, Sergeant Hawkins. So we um, got our ditty bags and all that stuff. And, you know, our, our that's what we call them, ditty bags, that you carried all your stuff in and everything. And <clears throat> got in the vehicle and took us to Ellsworth. And I guess we got there at about 1030 in the morning. And mm -hmm. I don't know where they took Michael Johnson, but they took me straight to the commander's office as a Colonel Spraker. And uh, it was four or five people in there, and there was a a, a young OSI guy who uh, who's been involved in several things, and on some of these channels called Richard Doty, he was a young guy at the time. I, I outranked him, and he was there as a witness, but he had a supervisor he reported to, and then there was another man there in civilian clothing, and he was in a suit. Now, I don't Excuse know me, did you did you just say that Richard Doty was there? Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was right. a young, he was stationed there. He was a young OSI guy. Yeah. I don't know if he'd been in security police or law enforcement or LE before, but uh he somehow got cross trained over in the OSI and which is good. You know, it's it's office of special investigation. So it's kinda like being the detective, you know, that kind of thing. But we all had had those um investigative rights and, and uh training. So Mm -hmm. It just takes it a step further, but he was there and he had, like I said, he had a, a person he reported to, and then there was a man that was in, um, in a suit and I, he had, I think he was a civilian. He might've, may have been a government guy. I was not introduced to him and he didn't say anything. He just listened. And of course, Colonel Sprake was there. And then, uh, I think the, um, I think somebody wing security control was there as well. And, um, like a high ranking individual. And of course they asked me, everything you know what what i saw what i did what i didn't do you know for one we did not strike the site which was the procedure that was supposed to be done what does and that mean exactly that means perform the security function on the facility you know what what caused the alarm you know was I see. There anything there was there anything so um someone else did that later i found out <clears throat> at a later time you know, that night, one of the backup alert teams went to November 5. We weren't there because I didn't know that all these people were looking for us to start mm. with. Mm. And um, 
but the site had to be addressed regardless. The mission had to be done no matter what. Somebody had to go to that missile site. Of course, there was nothing there as far as I knew. I never heard. But I didn't know all these people were looking for us on the, in the, from the civilian side of law enforcement. And, of course, um, I, I literally got grilled for the next four hours on everything that I saw and trying to describe it. And I got, you know, even got laughed at one time, which I, I didn't appreciate. And that was a one of these guys that were just, I guess, out of wing security control. So, yeah, like, right. But there have been many more incidents similar to that uh, in the missile field. But um, anyway, they were taking it serious. And, of course, I had to write a report. And I don't, I don't know the name of the, uh, the number of the report. But um, and it was it was three pages. I mean, it was one of those carbon copy things, you know, like three pages. You do the original page and it transfers down to two additional pages. And it was three pages of that that I wrote because I, I, I had everything in my memory. And I even wrote in, I I wrote it. I wrote, do not fear, which is what I heard. I wrote the description of what I thought I saw or what I saw to me and what I felt and where we ended up and what we did or we didn't do. I wrote everything in there. And um, so from when that was all said and done, then um, Colonel Spraker said, well, we're going to send you over to the flight surgeon. They want to take a look at you. And so Richard Doty went there, too, with his partner or with his OI, his, op his officer and this other guy in a suit. And then there was a nurse and then there was his doctor. Um, there were five or six, five or six people that came over there while I was just being looked at. You know, it wasn't anything personal at that particular time. And um, as I, of course, I had to take off my, I had to take off my outer, outer garment, you know, my outer fatigue jacket, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uniform. So I was in my t-shirt and surgeon kept, he kept lifting up my head like this. He did ears, eyes, nose, throat, you know, looked at me, you know, asked me to cough, check my heartbeat, pushed on my internals a little bit check me you know every way and um he goes well, let me ask you something he said uh he goes you, you know you got burns on you right and i said what he goes you're you know like a sunburn i said i didn't even think about that but i did this this is the right side of my head i went wow you know, I'm from Tampa, Florida, and I know what a sunburn is. And living in South Dakota, you lose that ability to fight off the sun. So, you know, it don't take long. You're creamy white, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, guess, I mean, I don't know how else to say it, but uh, but even though it gets blasting hot there, it's not the same. But anyway, so I was burned here on the right side of my face. I don't know for the extent of it, but he took a skin sample from right up here. And then I was burned on the back of my hand, and this was the hand that was exposed that I had my flashlight in, hmm. my mag light. It was a big old D cell, three cell, three cell D cell <laughs> mag light, weighed about 40 pounds, it seemed. We used them as batons if we had to, you know. But um, so he took a skin sample off the back of my hand, too. Asked me several questions, you know, could I taste that kind of thing? He swabbed my mouth. Um, you know, I don't know what else they, he, he kept the skin samples and they, I don't know if they kept the swab or whatever. I'm sure they probably did. They and check you for radiation too? Mm-hmm. That's what he was checking. He was checking me for radiation burns. Hmm. That's hmm. what he said. And we didn't have TLDs or anything that any dosimeters or anything like that back then. Cause we weren't, you know, everything was protected and underground. So 
well, we didn't have any direct uh, contact, you know, mm -hmm. unless you went down into the C plug, you would, you could reach up and touch it or, you know, you wanted to write something on the side of these missiles, but I never did, you know, that would be a big offense. Um, but anyway, um, so I was there for another, wait, you made me do something else. Uh, my back or something. I don't know. Anyway, I was there for about two and a half hours and, um, they talked amongst themselves. And then finally I was able to, I was able to be released from him and he went back to the SATAF building, which was our main organizational building where Colonel Spraker and the base commander and the wing security control uh, commander or, or officer in charge were. And they asked me several more questions, you know, and asked me about Michael Johnson, how, I, how well did I know him? Uh, and which was not very well at all. So, well, you know, he was evident, he was working vacation relief, you know, because my normal guy who was my member went on vacation to get married. And um, so that's all that's uh, all I worked with him was that one night and I didn't see him again. We were separated from that point. And uh, I didn't I never went back to November control again. They sent me to well, let me back up a minute. So normally I'd be out there for three days on and four days off. So they didn't send me back out there that day. So I got like a week and a half off, you know, <clears throat> which my, my wife at the time didn't understand because <clears throat> I, I couldn't tell her, but she mm -hmm. saw that I was sunburned. She had questions. Where'd you, where'd you get sunburned like that? You know? And I, I honestly, I couldn't tell her and, I, mm -hmm. and um, it bothered me a great deal. But uh, I had to, I just had to, because I signed that non-disclosure and that meant everything, you, you, you know, you start talking and they know it or they find out because they will actually, they will, they will find out if you talk to somebody. I'm serious. Well, what about now? You talking about it? Yeah, well, I don't have a clearance any longer and I don't have a, uh, a U.S. DOE Q clearance any longer as I left uh, DOE in 19 or yeah, 1996. Yeah, I don't know how that works, but, you know, I mean, is there a certain amount of time that you're able to speak about this freely or are you uh, supposed no, to? Not no? really, just as long as I'm not in a I'm not in a um, in a career field now that requires a clearance or anything or anything of that nature to mm -hmm. for this subject matter. And I think it's out. I think it's out now. Back then, they didn't want you talking about it um, and they held you to that. So, as I said, they separated us. And they sent me to Kilo Control, which was the command center or the command uh, area for uh, the 68th area, which would comprise the five sites. Um, and uh, and that's where the flight chief and the system flight chief also stayed during the three days out and four days off. So I did that. And about eight months later is when I got a, an assignment, Osan Air Base, Korea. And I went to the I went to my commander and begged him. I said, you know, I'm a newlywed. I said, you know, I've been working missiles. I said, I'm an, you know, an outstanding security policeman and got letters, you know, and stand board evaluations of outstanding work and everything. And I asked him, I said, you know, could, could I get something else where my wife can go? And they would, they just, you're going remote for a year. And that's what it ended up doing. Actually, it ended up being 14 months. And of course it cost him a marriage too, but you know, that's the way that goes. But um, uh, no matter what I did, you know, I was uh, from that point forward, you know, you know, we everything was scrutinized and you always were uh, asked questions about it. And um, 
another thing too, a weapon was never taken. These other, these other, for some reason, these other uh, unidentified, we were relieved of our weapons. That never happened. And I can't believe they come up. They just made, they just said that. And that really torqued me off. And they know it too. And that's Lou Elizondo and those guys. But, um, you anyway. sure that wasn't like on the, in the editing room, someone, it might have been. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I have no idea, but it, it, it was supposed to go one way and it went another, I guess. I don't know, but I'm not, I'm not complaining. I just don't like falsehoods. You know, it's hard enough yeah. to tell many, many people that something like this happened. Cause I have no question in my mind, there is life elsewhere on this, in this, in this universe. And there's a lot more than one of them. And they are yeah. highly, highly intelligent, but we can't even, we don't even have a clue. So they, did they talk, did you, did you talk about the beings when you were being debriefed? Yes. And what, and what, how was that, how was that you handled? Uh, some scoffs and some hands over the head like that. And that kind and that kind of thing. I just told them the truth. Mm -hmm. I had nothing to hide. Yeah. Even oh. when I, you know, this is another thing too. I, I, I want to, tell you how, how this follows you. Uh, after the Air Force, I, uh, I, I literally, when I got out of the Air Force, I had a, an ex-commander that um, he went to work for the Department of Energy, and I started at General Electric Neutron Devices at USDOE in Largo, Florida. We, there we made an, an RTG. It was a triggering device for a nuclear weapon. Every, there's 13 bomb building facilities in the country. This is not classified information. This is, you can find this out anywhere. So we, we made the RTG radioisotopic thermal nuclear generator. It's about it's about 12, 13 inches long, about two and a half, three inches in diameter. And it's about 115 degrees if you pick it up and hold it, and it'll stay like that for 10,000 years. It's a battery. Wow. And wow. it's the it's the ignition thing in a nuclear weapon between two hemishells. But anyway, and that's not classified either. I got a complete drawing of a of a weapon here, but anyway, um when I, when I obtained my clearance, you know, I was with guys that were ex-police officers, some Delta Force people, Rangers, all kinds of people with, you know, high, highly qualified individuals with really good clearances, really good backgrounds. I mean, literally before 1983, you could drive your personal own vehicle up to any nuclear national security complex, literally. And walk through a door, and it'd be there'd be weapons grade material on a table, and you could access it. <laughs> I mean, it was just that bad. Security on these facilities was terrible. Mm. I mean, it was like the old Keystone police, Keystone cops. You know, I've seen response vehicles with three wheel bicycles with one guy pushing and one guy pedaling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In 1983, it's all changed now, of course. But anyway, so getting back to clearance. So when you when you apply for a Q clearance. You literally are going back to about third or fourth grade of your life mm -hmm. and up to date. And I mean, everything, I mean, I've got, a, I wish I should have pulled that out for you. My Q clearance is about two inches thick. Mm. And that's just investigative material that runs behind you wherever you go. You know, everybody that's got a Q clearance uh, has the same thing. And um, anyway, with my back, I'd never been arrested, never been in trouble, never done anything wrong to, you know, where you know, there'd be any kind of charges or anything like that. I, I just, this is not in me, but um, my Q clearance, because of that incident, 
1977 took eight months for me to obtain. And in that eight months, I was called into DOE offices three times and questioned about, is there anything else that I wanted to disclose that happened back in my military time? And of course, if I'd have talked about it, and I knew this, and these people were from Oak Ridge and in Washington, D.C. that interviewed me. If I'd have spoken about that, I don't think I'd ever been, I would have never been cleared. And my family depended on me, you know? And so maybe that's why they asked you three times to see if you would talk about yeah, it. Maybe they knew about it. Time. And then every five years that you were there, you know, they redo your clearance and they can mm -hmm. do just a, a sporadic clearance. They'll just, they'll just tell you where you, you know, you're being, you're being processed for another Q clearance or it's going to be redone on you again. So mm -hmm. all my buddies that I just described that, that uh, didn't even some, some served in the military, some didn't, you know, they'd get their clearances in three or four months, you know, and of course I did have like 51 addresses from all the places that I lived, you know, from my father being a merchant seaman. And, you know, we go from city to city as he was assigned, you know, with Texaco. And, um, <clears throat> but, um, it was, it was really, uh, and it was really only one or two people at general at neutron devices before I went to Oak Ridge at the Y 12 plant that even knew this incident happened to me. That's how close to heart you have to keep this, especially back during that time. So it's, it's been an ongoing, it's really been an ongoing, uh, topic for me, you know, and, and then to be able to finally speak about it and openly and, and, mm -hmm and feel what I feel. And especially to go back there and see it again, it just, I can't tell you how it just, uh, it really kind of, it got to me. Yeah. Really I saw, bad. I saw when I so it, uh, watched I that many people saw that, but yeah. I couldn't help myself. And you know, it wasn't all that. I mean, they just edited out so much that I was like, okay. Mm. So you took three days and it's at eight minutes. I'm a, I'm not a camera fiend. <laughs> And yeah. I don't expect anything. I'm not. I'm not looking at a motion picture or nothing like that. I'm a working guy, and I love to go to the range. I shoot. I race radio control race cars. That's my hobby, and um, you know, I, I'm just easy going. And I ride my motorcycle. And I just enjoy life, you know. And um, it just blows my mind. Though, you know, the secrecy that that has to uh, go along with these instances. And there, there are many more that people just can't speak about them, you know? So let's talk a little bit more about um, distance. What do you, do you know what the distance is that you actually ended up um, from where you last remember? Oh yeah. Um, from November that where that little, uh, where that newel is located, we were just a, a couple of like, like two miles away from Newell. Uh, there's another one of those, um, maps like that and it goes from november 5 but i couldn't get november 5 on a map to plot to new lake reservoir so uh november 1 to november 5 was about seven and a half miles eight miles and then over to new lake i think it all totaled 20.9 miles i believe something like that but it was like nine nine and a half nine point eight miles from Newell from november 5 missile site over to Newell Lake and I'd never been there before. So that's and the only reason we, uh, I want to go back to that point. Those two gentlemen that 
came up and uh, and identified themselves. They were ex, one ex police officer and once his and his dad was a trooper. Mm-hmm. When we and I was with the Richard Emberling, he was my host, and they started talking about. And I said, I don't know where this place is, where this dam or whatever is, you know. And he goes, that's New Lake Reservoir. He goes, go back up to Highway 79 and take a left and go all the way up the highway. I would have never even gone. I didn't know where it was. I'd never, I would have never done that. It would have been over that day after we left November 5th because I don't even know where that, that point on the map was. I didn't know there was a New Lake Reservoir or dam. So followed their directions and went right to went right to it. And it was well back off the beaten path, off the highway, almost up near Castle Rock, which is um just up just up uh, highway seventy nine. And that's the reservoir right there. Interesting. And so wild. wild. And there was okay, so this you're you're missing like five hours. Five hours, yeah. And and you you end up at this dam. You have no idea why, or no one else probably has any idea why or how. How we and, even got there. Yeah. Uh, and there, was no, and there if, were no tire tracks behind us, beside us, or anything else. We were really? just there. And where we were, we were in mud. So I don't know if the snow melted, but at nine degrees, it don't melt very much. And it had been that way for a couple of, you know, for three or four days. So the ground was pretty well frozen everywhere else that we had been. That's all I, that's what I can attest to. But when I stepped out in those money boots, I stepped in mud. Now, maybe the bottom of that dam was leaking because if you looked at it from a, from a a hundred yards behind it in center mass, you can see where that snow is down at the very bottom of it there. That's basically, we were just up from that, but behind that wall is about, that wall is about 50 feet high, but it's at an angle of about 45 degrees. And then it runs about 150 yards from the southern point to the northern point, maybe 200 yards. Hmm. I was, I was trying to find an image of it online. Can't can't quite find it. But, yeah, it's um, very difficult. Yeah. How many people know about Newell Lake Reservoir? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and I, I can't foresee that Mike Johnson would have been driving if he was Michael frozen. Johnson. Yeah. He was frozen when you saw the, the big object, you know, this object. Yes, he, he was just frozen to the wheel then and, and remained, as far as you know, remained frozen to the wheel the entire time. And, Had uh, you ever been able to locate Mike Johnson? <clears throat> okay, we'll continue that. After the entire incident was over, said, and done, I was back at my apartment uh, with my wife. It was about two weeks after the incident happened. And I, you know, I had, I still had all kind of strange dreams and, uh, cold sweats and all kind of things. And still my wife didn't know what was going on, but I came, became so interested in the pyramids. I, I don't know how or why, but I mean, that's still an interest today. A knock came at my door. We lived in a place called Hainesway Apartments. They're still there. I went by. Hmm. <laughs> I had to just see, you know, if all, all this was really here still, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, Michael Johnson came to, came to my door. And like I said, we weren't friends and I didn't know him. But he had asked somebody that knew me where I lived. And it was important enough for him to come knock on my door. And when he did, I couldn't believe he was standing there. Hmm. And for a minute, I couldn't remember his first name. He yeah. said, I'm Michael. I said, I, yeah, 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 Michael, come in, you know. And uh, he goes, man, he goes, I got to talk to you about this stuff. He goes, I don't, he goes, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't even know what to think. I don't know what to say. He goes, you know, they, they 
moved him somewhere like in the 66 or something like that. And um, I said, do you think, pardon me, do you think they divided you, separated you purposely? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I do. And he told me he lived in Chicago, Illinois, is what I remembered. Mm-hmm. And I could have sworn I wrote down either his somebody in his family, like whether it was his parents or whatever, you know, because he was he was 25, 26 years old. Too. Back then, we all, you know, if our parents were alive, we had contact with our parents all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, he wrote down his name and where he's from and a phone number. And I put it in my Bible. And I, I, uh, I, I don't know what happened to it. Of course, many years have transpired, you know, and many moves and divorce and every damn thing else. But um, I, I can't I can't find it. But uh, a gentleman that um, I, I shouldn't use his name, I don't think. Anyway, they paid for investigators and even even um, uh, Rich Emberling. Uh, who, who's an ex-police officer was on discovery plus as a host he um they put together this little investigative team and others have done this too and we've spent about nine thousand dollars i think mm-hmm. the investigators trying to find michael johnson mm-hmm. he's a real light-skinned black fellow super nice he's he's not he's not huge he was he was thin he was maybe 175 pounds soaking wet and um built nice and just really a super sharp individual and uh, I wish I could find him again. We've been looking for him for well, I guess when we started this thing um, back with um, with uh, Robert Hastings. You know, he's the one I contacted after all those all these years after him and uh, uh, mm-hmm. the Molten Howe. And um, and um, anyway, so and you know, as I said, we spent probably about eight nine thousand dollars on investigators, but nobody's ever come up to finding him. You know, and even through the Freedom of Information Act, we've used that. And and mind you, I don't know what all's on microfish that came out of Ellsworth from the missile side of it, because aircraft are still there for personnel records. But I can't hardly find anybody, you know. That Can you go? Oh, pardon me. Can you go more into the conversation that you had with Mike? Sure, sure. Well, what we did, uh, you know, my wife was there, of course, and I didn't care as long as he was there and he was going to talk about it. I was going to talk about it, you know. So we drew what we saw hmm. and we drew basically the same type of craft, you know, a spherical craft with, with like a sun with, I know the whole exterior was moving as if there was gas around it, like red, yellow, and orange colors. I mean, it was like nothing I can even, it's hard to describe. Now, when you were looking at this picture, was there a, a warhead underneath yeah, directly underneath it. There should be a, a picture from above. Oh, it's that's just, right. Let me yeah. let me get that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's it's my interpretation. It's crude, but it's there. That's a thirteen ton blast. So that would be looking from above the side, and that that diamond shaped uh, object right there in the middle of that would be what the blast or of the top of that missile is. And that missile is about um, sixty feet underground. Mm-hmm. So that door would blow off to the rear, to the most pointed part of it, to the upper portion, would blow off, and it would blow it about an eighth of a mile. And then that missile would deploy immediately, because it's a solid fuel rocket. There's no hesitation. It goes right right now. Um, so, so besides drawing, did he tell you his experience and why he was frozen to the wheel? He just said he couldn't, he couldn't move. He just said, I was just... 
I would, I couldn't do anything. All I could do was breathe and I, he couldn't, he couldn't come to grips with what he was seeing. Did he see beings too? He didn't say. Hmm. And I didn't tell him. I wanted to see where it went with him. I see. The other thing was he told me, he asked me about my, my mitten. And this is a real, real, really a strange thing. But he asked me about my mitten from my right hand. Of course, I didn't have it on, but I had it with me. And he said he saw one of my gloves on a shiny floor. Hmm. Well, you know, the floorboard in that F-150 is black black mm. vinyl or rubber or whatever you call it, you know? Mm-hmm. And he goes, you, you, did you get, you have your glove from a, a shiny floor? And I, and I kind of said, what do you mean, Michael, my glove? I said, my gloves are in my bag, you know? He goes, well, I saw a glove. You're one of your mittens. Cause I was one of the only guys that had those cause a B 52 bomber pilot gave it to me and it, but it does, it covers these three fingers, your trigger fingers free. And it comes, they come down to about here and they lash over like that. And they're, they got, they're made of kangaroo skin and they got his fur on the back of them. They are really awesome gloves. Mm. I mean, you know, you can do some hundred degree below zero with those things. But anyway, when he said that, I, I went, well, wait a minute, I'll check this. So I'm running, I go in my bedroom and I grab my ditty bag, big old like duffel bag. And I come out in the living room on the couch and I just dump it right there clothes and underwear and toiletries and all that stuff's there. And there's my left hand glove, but there's no right hand glove. Hmm. So I guess I left my right hand glove with him. How about that? Yeah. And he remembered that. And he remembered that. And I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And then I kept telling him, you know, did you hear any, did you hear us? Did you hear us talking to you? He says, I was in a, he said it was in a tunnel. He said, I was in a tunnel. Mario, he said, I've never had anything like this. I, I can't even describe what I feel. And I said, you've been having dreams? Because I dreamed of nuclear war. I, I dreamed of all kind of catastrophic things, man. Just I, I just out of the blue. And I don't normally think that way, you know. And I still have vivid dreams today. I don't. I think it's, it's still, I, it, it never goes away. Honestly, mm. there's not a time when I walk out of here for work in the morning at 4.30 or so. Hmm that I don't look up and think about that. Literally uh-huh. in South Dakota at November five, I could smell the air just like it was. It was like it was electrified that night, you know, wow. looking out that window. I mean, when I climbed up on that, pulled myself out on that windowsill and why I did that, I don't know. Why did I not, you know, I, I guess there are some things that you can do in your life that will it make a difference 10 years from today? You know, wonder what would have happened had I got out if I had those strength in my body and the to do that to walk to get out and walk up to that i never opened the gate of the fence or nothing to go in the site what mm. would have happened had i done that yeah and did you happen to hear speaking of the site you said that someone else went and checked on it and did whatever the process is yeah. did they did was there anything that was affected because that thing was directly over no not that I heard of or, or ever found out. Honestly. And what type of an alarm would go off that that thing would set off? Would it be like a perimeter type situation? You mean as far as noise wise would go? No, no. As far as that, when you were first alerted to go out to it. Oh, the sensors would be interacted with, would be breached. So then turn that, 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 uh, that from above, it would be from above as well. Absolutely. 
Yeah. You see those is on that one side on that one November five picture looking from the side. You see three little things sticking up like look like ears look like this. Yeah, let That's, me try. This yeah. this thing here. You see those little black things right there yeah. sticking up? Mm -hmm. There's three of those on the side. They look like ears. And what they are, they they form a, a belt from about five inches off the ground up to about fifteen feet above the site itself. Like a bird will fly over, like those those kites you see out on the beach and stuff. Um those little bird kites, they're, they're called kites. Mm -hmm. they, they used to always set those alarms off, you know. Huh. And even the snow would set would set those off. We'd have to go dig out between all the antennas to the ground. Oh, how about that? Yeah. And if we couldn't get a reset, then a camper alert team would be called to sit on the site until they got a reset of all alarms. But looking back at that picture, looking straight down, if you can pull that up real yeah. quick. You see the you see the blast door Take, takes takes me a minute because yeah. there's, there's a lot we got a lot of pictures here, and I, I wish I could have sent you more. <laughs> okay, this one right here. Here we go. Yeah, looking down there, um, you'll see sitting right out here in front. There's another little round, little yes. round drawing right there. That right. would be the access. That would be the C plug, and that would be open. It you know, and these things are all like super thick doors that. You know, that's decommissioned, so it's not classified as speak about that. You know, that was opened by that was opened by a combination and we'd open one door, then the maintenance team would have combos for the next se section down and further. So that was the C plug, that real small little drawing in front there, as best I can do it. And you said across the road there was another craft. This little guy, this thing down here in the bottom, that was when I I think I think that's where I was taken because I, I was oh. taken from the side of my vehicle. You can see my vehicle parked there at the cattle gate, mm -hmm. or, you know, our vehicle in that position. And there was another, a smaller craft here across the road and it was sitting on the ground. And I think that's where these beings came from. And I think this, this large ship was, or the small ship was from that large ship. Yeah. That's who you're, you're speculating. And how did you leave it? You, you said you got Mike Johnson's phone number and you lost it and put it in the Bible and all that. Well, but how did you, well, the conversation must have been really quite amazing. Yeah, we, we talked for we talked for a couple of hours. We, we sat there and drank some sweet tea, you know, and just discussed everything about our families, about these dreams and what happened and what we saw. And what I saw was completely different than what he saw. He didn't. He didn't really say any beings or anything. He didn't see that, but I, I begged to question him on that because I know what I heard, and he he did say something about have no fear, do not fear, hmm. and you know, and also he said that. Uh, and I'm trying to, you know, I'm as we sit here, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to see him just as we work, because that's, that, that's how well I can picture this stuff. I mean, I can just like put myself there. Um, and I remember that glow, that that glow from that object was behind him, looking at him and, and, and seeing it around his profile. It was just striking. I mean, I've, I've never seen a, a human being lit up like that. You know, I guess I was too, because I was evidently burned when I exposed myself out of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. But um, and what are what are these here? These 
marks, pock marks. That's, on my, that's my left ankle, and that's underneath my left arm. Those are pock marks, is what I've been told they are. With the, did you discover them when they were looking, looking at you? Uh, I, 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 it was some time after that. I see. I've never uh -huh. known any. I've, you know, a doctor. You know, to ask about them, he says, "I said, is there any treatment that you would do?" I've never been in a in a situation where my life was in danger, or you know, or anything like that, where emergency procedures had to be done on me. But um, he said that is completely unorthodox. He said those are. He looked at them really, really close with a little magnifying glass. He goes, "They are identical." And what they're doing in those parts of your body, he said, I can't explain it. There's mm -hmm. no procedure that he knew that would that would do that. Now, you you think that that the light you saw the days before was the same, possibly the same light that. Days before, no. days before when you went out. No, that was, same, that was the same night, Martin. Oh, that, that was, was all the same night. That was nine thirty. So night. you think that was the same object yeah, then? Obviously, that was the same. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, okay. That's right. That was like at one o'clock yeah. in the morning when you were called yeah. out. I got it. It's yeah. just really strange. And you know, November five was the absolute closest launch facility to November one. Our travel mm. time was the least amount of time to get there than it was anywhere else mm. of all of our missiles in November flight. It, it seems to me that. It's kind of funny. They only send two people out when there's a something triggers off something at a, a missile site. Well, I that, mean, you're, he, you're heavily armed response team. I mean, it's no yeah. different than, you know, than police officers in the street today. You know, I mean, really, you're just, you know, government, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a lot different, you know, yeah. but you're 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 extremely well armed and equipped. So and mm -hmm. you've been trained for that very thing and cold weather and whatever, you know, environment that you're in, you uh, this You're is the response team right here, right? That's correct. That would yeah. be a backup alert team, a primary response team, and you see the helicopter yep. back in the back. That'd be a quick reaction team. Now, they would be from the main base. They would mm -hmm. be sent immediately as we engaged whatever was happening on a missile site. Everybody around that armor personnel carrier, there should be a 50 or a 60 uh, or an M60 in that turret of that armor personnel. That's a Cadillac gauge armor personnel carrier. So, mm -hmm. um, but that quick reaction team, 55 miles at 200 something mile an hour, it'd be a six man fire team in that helicopter. And he'd probably have some type of uh, machine guns in that chopper also. So, you know, we, we could protect what we had out there. There's no doubt about it. And uh, now what is this particular uh, site here? That this that, drama? Is a, that is a memory from, um, I'm not sure if it's a dream or out of hypnosis to where um, I'm, I'm in a room and it's, I, I can't, I don't, I'm not good enough to draw all the panels that would be closest to me and on my right. And what these are, these are old items from like the 20s and the 30s and stuff that I was asked to look at. I don't know how that, I was asked <laughs> to look at these things. And that's an old, I remember that stand up lamp because we had one in our house in Port Arthur, Texas when I was really young. That was a black and white TV box. Stereo on a sewing machine is down. In, I mean, I know these <laughs> the things that were in this room, but I was told, and this is the strangest thing, and these are bits and pieces that are in my mind. I was told that I could look out this window that's behind that or to the left of this lamp. <laughs> 
and it was a round window, but there was it was it had like a it was it was round, but there was like a it was like a pie shape. But uh, how should I say it? It was a round window, but in in the in that roundness, there was a pie shape that was blocked out. So mm. three quarters of it you could see out of, but I was too afraid to look out the window. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it. I said no, I'm not doing that. And I don't so know you don't I, really. Oh, pardon me. You don't really know if this is a, a real memory or, or, or something that it's a, was it, a dream? I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a real memory. Mm -hmm. And then I remembered following. I remember following a, a small little being to come to, with him and taken into a hallway and then opening another door. And there's like fog. And then I wake up. Or then I'm out of it. Wow. But I've had it more than one time. Some of these things are reoccurring. Well, you know? I, I'll tell you what, I can't believe that two hours went by this quickly. <laughs> <laughs> it really did. But uh, I really appreciate, I, I could tell this was uh, kind of an emotional thing for you. And I, oh, I really appreciate it. I hope in some way that it helped you to talk about it. Absolutely does. Every time. Yeah. It does. But there, there are parts of it that, just it just slams you you know and I, I it just puts you mentally there for just a flash just because it never goes away and i think when i went out there last year boy it really rekindled some things because I've, I've got a dream log that i i mean i i hope those things never happen because mm. it, it's always like calamity major calamity stuff oh jeez, yeah yeah. Yeah. You're not alone in, in having those dreams. I've heard a lot of people that have had a, a counter saying similar things. Mario, thank you so much. Thank you, Martin, very much. Have a All great right. evening. Thank you. All right. You take care. All you right. All right, everyone. So that's it for the show. We'll be back at the regular time next week with Caroline, Corey, Dave Altman and Dave Mason. And thank you so much for watching. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky. Mm -hmm.